Hello and welcome to Tutor's Tuesdays here on UWS Radio. Today we have a fantastic guest in Scary Vord, Daniel Gillespie. Daniel, how are we today? I'm good, Fraser. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah. So, first things, um, I'm always curious to know how different people are coping with the current lockdown. So, how are you finding lockdown yourself? This one's definitely been uh, tougher than, than lockdown one. Lockdown one was a bit of a novelty, I think, with the, the weather and being something so different and out in the garden and all that it was a bit like a, a bit like a holiday as bad as things were obviously but this one's obviously quite different with the being in winter time and, and the weather i think i think everybody's finding this one tougher so uh, hopefully that there'll be a wee change soon in restrictions and my my young kids went back to school uh, yesterday morning so that's that's been a big change for us and they are certainly happy to be back at school and yeah i think myself and uh, my fiance are happy they're back at school as well just <laughs> How how did you find them um, homeschooling? Was it yourself that uh, was doing it? Mixed, to be fair, we were lucky that um, Sarah's mum is a retired teacher, so she did a lesson with uh, Danny, my oldest, every day, which was good. It gave him a different voice, and obviously he knew the, the sort of curriculum and stuff. Um, but Katie, the youngest, is preschool, so she's three, and she probably uh, she would need more time than, than ever. She's quite independent for a three-year-old, but I think because Danny was getting more time and had structured things um, online she was feeling a bit left out and stuff and missing a pal so I, I was sort of doing things with her. I've never done so many jigs so it's <laughs> games and it's, since I was a kid I don't think uh, so no it was it, it was it, it was nice and it's nice and tough and equal measures if that makes sense you know it's mm-hmm. we we travel away and a lot or you used to anyway and, and we're on the road a lot so the, the nice part of this move always said that has been we've had a chance to spend a lot more time at home with our families because a few guys in the band have all got, got young kids so that, that's that part of it's been great um, but I think I think we're all ready to, to get back out there and hopefully play as soon as we can you know Did you pick up any hobbies in lockdown um, across the three lockdowns? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say new hobbies um, probably just try to do things, certainly been reading a lot more than, than I ever did before uh, and try to get some I'm desperately trying to improve my Gaelic as well because Sarah's works in Gaelic television and uh, Danny goes to, and Katie go to Gaelic uh, medium schools so I need to, I need to definitely brush that up so it's, it's on my list I should, I should be better than what I am but uh, I definitely need to address that but no I, I wouldn't say any totally brand new hobbies that I think of I think more just yeah, it's given time to do things that maybe beforehand we didn't get time to do um, but being away with, with the band so much and stuff as well it's just a shame we can't mm. go home to Tyree or, or, or see more people but um, that, that's obviously there for a reason the restrictions are there to protect violence and things So one thing that you did um, this year was the Doddy Weir Challenge with um... yeah with the face mask that they came out, how did you uh, how did you get involved in that? Big Ali Kellock, we've known him for a long time, former Glasgow Warriors and Scotland captain. Um, he's been coming to the odd gig for about well maybe as much as ten years. He always knew he was there because he was like head and shoulders above everyone else <laughs> in the audience. So uh, we've known Al for a long time, and, and he messages. Um, I think he was I was going to do a New Year message as part of the New Year Day live stream. And then uh, around the same time, they were just kicking off the Dodie Weir thing. And, and he said, um, do you fancy joining this? And messages around, I think four of us in my health 
Marty, Alec and Scott said I were up for that and then we, we joined in but then it just seemed to take off the amount of people <laughs> that were involved in it and then we ended up with there was a separate uh, Fridays versus um, Ouija's sort of challenge that was set up as well ironically we were in with the Ouija's because we're Glasgow based just now and not not with the shifters but um, that, that, that was good laugh as well and just added a wee bit of competitive uh, edge to it all which, which is good so no it was amazing um, obviously an incredible amount of money to, to raise and I think it was a good focus for a lot of people in January which was a very cold and, and dark month you know and as I said as you were saying earlier on with the lockdown having something to focus your mind on and do because with my home school and a lot of time I was doing miles at like 10 o'clock at night 11 o'clock at night and not a chance I remember <laughs> if, I, if I didn't have the uh-huh. have the, the Dodie Weir thing to sort of uh, push me on so um, no it was good it was good to do so if folk aren't um, aware of what the Dodie Weir challenge was do you give a bit of um, bit of description and what you you're raising money yeah so it's raising money obviously if you're not familiar with Dodie Weir is diagnosed with MMD and um I actually read his book during lockdown as well, and I was just staggered to, you know, find out how many people have had MND and how little in terms of research and, and money has been invested in the research compared to other conditions. So it's obviously an amazing thing that they've been doing to raise more money, hopefully enhance the research for this. Um, so there's, there's been various things. But the Dodie Weir Challenge was about uh, doing miles for the month of January. Um, and you could do walking, cycling, running, um, and then they split it into teams. So the different captains in Glasgow, obviously Alan Kellock and Alan McCoy was in it, Emma Dodds, um, Kelly Brown, and then you know other regions. There was Edinburgh, and there was the North, and then there was the Exiles. Those people around the world. So they messages from folk like Ewan McGregor and Jared mm-hmm. um, Butler and everyone else involved. Gary Lineker. It was just it, just, it grew arms and legs. There were yeah. so many people uh, on it. Which, which is amazing to see, and obviously raising awareness and raising funds. I think in, in the end, it passed the million pound mark in raising the month, which was, was incredible. It's amazing. On that, so it was great. We put there was a sort of end wrap wrap up party that we, we sent some music in for as well, and uh, there was lots of nonsense in that. And there's now talk about a, a Dodie Wood fest and stuff as well. So it, it's great, you know, it, it's a hugely positive thing around something that's you know, a terrifying, terrifying illness. So hopefully we can we can keep supporting it when and where we can. So we'll talk about your, your story into music. You're a Tyree lad. Um did you have any influences at a young age um up north? Yeah various one at, at home, uh, Gordon Connell who was a, a trooper was a big influence. Um we were very fortunate to have the music tuition on Tyree from Gordon if you are interested in accordion from Robert Beck, we did bad pipes with, with him as well. And, but, you know, it's, it, it, people always say, that, how is Tyree with such a small island population? only 650 people. How do we produce so many musicians? And I think it's just a, it's almost a cycle where, you know, you're, you're inspired by the generation before you or people. Angus McPhail from Skipness was three years mm-hmm. above me. So I, I was inspired by what Angus was doing. Angus was inspired by what Campbell Brown kind of sound did. So it's a, and then there's, after us there was the uh, Ian Smith from Trail West and Bernie. They used to come. I always remember when we started playing as a band at first, we were playing in the pub. They'd be in there uh, on, on the Sunday afternoon when they were allowed in. Uh, you know, it's like it must have been what Ian 
me for about five years under the years and that's what you do. I mean, being even younger sitting in there watching and making through there's other bands. So it's an amazing thing and Gordon's still going, he's still teaching us forty odd years he's been teaching accordion uh, for me. So that, that that was a massive influence to me and very, very proud to be be part of that that legacy as well. In terms of music, Blair Douglas was a huge inspiration. Um, I, did, I always remember the Summer in the Sky album that, that Blair uh, released, which is just like nothing I'd ever heard before. We were very much right into West Coast, Cayley music, dance bands and stuff. Um, so to hear an accordion player coming out with these with really advanced arrangements, writing songs that you know involved accordions, I thought was a, that was a real game changer. And, Know, so many self-penned compositions and that, that was even when we came down the line to doing a lot more original material with Gary Gore, Summer and Sky and Blair's work was always something we referenced um, as a point of you know, what can be achieved um, as well so that was a, a huge influence and then on the absolute other side huge into dance and house music as well. Um, what a mix you have don't you? Yeah <laughs> Myself, my brother, all that way. So it, it was the consent of this day. So I, I very, I think loads of people just assume make connections. Like, oh, he must have been influenced by Runrig. Actually, mm-hmm. the guys from Livingston, Fraser, and Alec were more familiar with Runrig than, than we were, and um, when we got together. So it's uh, uh, that that was we were very much either Kayleigh music or, or, or dance and house music, you know, so that, that was a, a strange match. That may, maybe explains a lot, I don't know. <laughs> Are you a fan when those two kind of genres combine? Sometimes, I think. <laughs> when they nail it, it's thing. brilliant. Yeah, we, we've obviously this, during lockdown, this is, you know, we've had various projects we're involved in. Uh, we've got, got involved with doing stuff with George Bowie and uh, GBX, which happened actually a while back there was you know i think um one of the other clive djs had, had heard the music and and, show, and shared it with george and he did a remix to take my hand that we weren't involved in at all but then we went to lockdown because he reached out to us and that we were away at the time in america so mm-hmm. when it came back around this year he was like you guys could could you do this with us and we went in i think it was alec and alan went in and worked with him on, on the remixes and then it was released and it was the week that Scotland qualified for the World Cup so it was like <laughs> ideal combo you know um, and it, it just went it went crazy take my hand went crazy for a, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks again which was which was great fun but uh, I think it's it's a really it's a really hard uh, balance you know to get right if it doesn't go right it can go spectacularly wrong so we were feeding back and George was great on, on, on it because you know G, GBX is, is really on the hard side of of dance music mm-hmm. as well but he sort of adjusted a wee bit and we adjusted a wee bit and we, we got something that was you know it, it was sort of palatable to, to both audiences because George is still playing it every single week and, and our audience you know a huge, a huge percentage of it loved it as well so uh, that that's it for what um, for us but we've had, we've had other remixes done before the tracks that have been sent through where we just we don't feel it's worked at all you know? so it can be quite a hard one so we'll go back to the origin of uh, Scaryvore. How did um, that all come around? Uh, Scaryvore started in a way, I, I, almost as a, an accident, to be honest. Um, I was playing in the pub in Tyree, and it wasn't even Martin that was playing with me. It wasn't my brother that was in. It was uh, my nephew, Edward, that was in playing. And this family who had been coming to Tyree, which ended up being Fraser, the drummer, 
mm-hmm. his family were in the pub and as you do you get to know visitors regular visitors to Lyon um, got chatting away and found out Fraser played drums so he just came up and, and played drums um, in the pub with me you know for a jam and then his dad did oh look we were running to the Kayleys in, in West Lothian as part of the school thing and knew I was leaving Tyree that summer to go and study in Glasgow so he said we come and do these Kayleys and we did a couple of Kayleys got to know Fraser got to know Alec who was at school with Fraser so myself Mark and Alec and Fraser the following summer decided uh, let's put a, a, a band together and we'll have have some laughs mm-hmm. um, and the guys from Skipnish sort of up and running a good couple of years by this point they said oh we'll help sort of tour and they set a tour on the west coast for us and we didn't even have a name in at that point we were just just you know flying around playing with an amazing summer and from there we get asked to do this we had play this wedding this bar this hall whatever it was and it just sort of snowballed from there um, and i think it was eventually the point when the skipmish guy said look do you want to record an album and we'll we'll fund it through the skipmish records label that they decided in the name and um, so that was 2008 or 2005 and um, we said right and we were really struggling for any with various ideas and it was it was like angus from skipnish that said look you know call yourself scary Bora, the lighthouse of the tidy and that's it and that, that stuck and away we go and there was a four of us and at that point as i said it was very much sort of west coast um, playing a lot of theories and stuff it wasn't until two albums down the line four or five years later but yeah 2010 i think was a, the scary war we decided to self-title album because that was when we said right we've had a play we've got to know each other mm-hmm. a couple of more band members come in Craig and, and Barry and we said look this is, this is what we want to get able to be is original music and original songs and, and try to play you know more music festivals and events like that as opposed to uh, just the Kayleys or doing stuff in the, in the wedding scene type thing so it was a big jump it's a scary jump but it, thankfully it all worked well and it, it, it sort of that's and things change from being just sort of locally in Scotland to getting a chance to play abroad in Spain and Italy and Germany and things like that. Am I right in saying that you were um, potentially coaching with Rangers at the time yeah. when Scary Boy was first starting? How did um, how did you decide that music was the thing that you, you wanted to do? Um, I, I think just because of the way it accelerated with, with Scary Boy. Um, and, and the opportunities that were there. So I, I was the only one at the band that wasn't studying music. We mm-hmm. were all at sort of university at the time. Martin was at the, the Conservatoire or the Academy of Music at that point, and the rest of the guys were doing the applied music course in Strathclyde. I was at Strathclyde doing sport and community, and through that, I had an opportunity to work with Rangers and the, and the youth level coaching. So I was there for about three years, and, and I absolutely loved it. You know, just, you know, it was a dream, absolute dream job to come in but I think it, it, it came to a difficult point where things were starting to get busy, I was scary more and I was travelling away and I was having to keep speaking to Rangers saying look I can't do these sessions, I can't do the 12 week blocks or I can't do this mm-hmm. and it just, it, I felt it was unfair on the on the kids that I was coaching and unfair on, on Rangers, I didn't want it to come to the point of going we're going to need to let you go or this becomes a problem and they were great about it, they, they, they were trying to be as flexible as, as they could but I just didn't want it to become a problem so we had to make the call of going right we're going to do this uh, try and make a go of this and do it full time um, in music so it, it, it wasn't an easy decision uh, but you know ultimately I hope, I hope it was the right one and I definitely miss it 
I'm hasty before and uh, ultimately that was my first sort of real passion mm. of things. But um So are you a Rangers man, are you? I am, yeah, yeah. I am. So it, 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 one of the amazing things as part of the coaching uh, with the club was we got the chance to play Celtics coaches at Ibrook on the pitch. Oh, you were playing the on, the, on the pitch? Oh, how was that? Yeah, so that, they did this at the end of the, every year at the end of the season, they played Rangers coaches versus Celtic coaches. Um, so I got the chance to walk out, you know, get changed in the changing room and walk through the tunnel, <laughs> which was a dream, you know, so yeah. I obviously didn't get to do it with, with a live audience there. Um, but it was a, a dream growing up was to, to do that and, and manage to do it in a roundabout way, uh, which was amazing. But it, it was great, a, a great experience. I still stay in touch. Um, my boss at the time was Craig Mulholland, he's now head of the, the whole academy at mm-hmm. Rangers. Um, and, uh, and Greg Stats still there as well. Lots, lots of coaches are employed, so it's, it's great to see the Rangers you know, stuck with, with these people on a long term plan. And, Always, always stay in touch if I can. Were there any players in the academy that you thought were brilliant and going to go on, go on big time? Yeah, and, and I always get a lot of stick for this, and I'm glad he's come back and proved me right. John Fleck. Seriously? John, I, I always remember <laughs> uh, seeing John Fleck for the first time, and I, I came away telling everybody, I said, look, we've got a world and, and not talking about Rangers <laughs> of Scotland. I was saying, this is the, this man's going to be the saviour of Scotland, and uh, loads of people are always reminding me of it. You know, things didn't work well. Uh-huh. Didn't, didn't not, I wouldn't say it didn't work out well, but they didn't work out. I think the way anyone hoped with John Fleck when he came into the Rangers team, but it didn't suit him at that time. I wouldn't say um, the, the way that they were set up and they were trying to play him as a wide man. Um, but he obviously made the choice to go down south and uh, mm. and. and you know, step up his career. I think he was at Coventry and things like that, and then obviously part of the Sheffield United side and, and scored against Man U last year when they were flying and things and back in that are involved in Scotland set up. So, um, you you and from Man Man always reminds me of that. And you go on about John Fleck all the time, and I was like, he's going to score at the Euros for us, and that's going to be it. You know? So how how yeah. smug were you when he um when he scored against United? I'm sure um you would have been doing I didn't the drop rounds. You in a message. I did. <laughs> I did drop you in a message. So, no, he, he, he's a he's a great lad, John uh, Fleck. He would come in because uh, I, I would be doing a session before he was in uh, with the youth department, and uh, he'd be in an hour, an hour and a half before any of the other kids in his group. You know, every day, and he would just be like inside Murray Park. We had um, targets on the walls. You know, for them hitting long passes to try and hit into these targets, and it was just, it was just incredible watching him. Um, but even his build, he, when the guys said, I'll oh, come out and see this kid, he was playing for Rangers under 18s and he was 13 at the time. I think. <laughs> you know, and he, he looked like Wayne Rooney's, like that way his neck was just like, huge, you know. Um, and uh, I always remember as well, we got, we got asked to go out, myself and John Gregg went out to Knightswood School to do coaching sessions with him and uh, his, his sort of fellow classmates at the school and everyone else they were really important because I think the press were already on to him at this point and going how good he, he played phenomenal for Scotland in the in the under 16s cup I think mm-hmm. and the press were on to how big a talent he was and I think Rangers were really cautious to make sure, make sure this boy's happy and you know, there was not too much pressure on him and everyone else as well but he was a any time I, I got to speak to him or deal with him he was just a great great kid um, so Delighted for him that it's it's went well, you know, and he's, he's playing at the top level now. 
My favourite video, John well. Flick, has to be Sheffield United released it. It was um, it was the caption was like "Never leave a Scot behind," and it was a video of McBurney getting clattered by some City player, and then I'm pretty sure like the next. Within the next ten minutes, there's just a, a video of John Flick flying through the same guy like to get back and for taking down McBurney. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, oh, he's like a toughie, and he, as did he always was a toughie character. Then I mean, also, uh-huh. um, it's just there's quite a few Scots and uh, down at Sheffield United, so sort of keep an eye on. We're always having a tough time at this year, but yeah, it's good that there's there's more Scots playing at that level, and, and, and that, that can only be a good thing for the national side, and it has been a good thing for the national side. So I hope. My, my hope is that uh, you know John's part of the, the Euros squad and, <laughs> and scores the winner against England at Wembley. That's what I'm hoping for. Oh, how long will you be celebrating? Oh, I'll be straight in the phone to you and from <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, we, we've actually all booked to go down to, to London. Oh, have you? Just in the hope that anything might happen. I think it was just in the absolute euphoria of us qualifying. Mm-hmm. There's about 50 of us going from the park bar in Glasgow and I <laughs> Brilliant. I, I don't know if we've got much chance, but we'll, we'll hang on there as much as we, as we can for that trip. Hopefully, it'll, it'll happen. So you briefly talked about um, your first um, sort of tour on the west coast. How how did you find it when you you started touring? And do you have a, a favourite memory or a favourite tour that you did? Uh, and you'd be willing to share any funny stories from that? Oof, it's hard. We always ask us what's your favourite gig or, or memory things. Honestly, there's just so many. I think one thing that always stands in my mind is um, Mull Music Festival and McGawkins and being a Mull from the early days. It's we were just always so excited to be going there and buzzing. It was it was always an amazing atmosphere, and uh, we got on so well with with. I think the great thing about Mull is it was like this thing where all the young people and all the people of all ages just all hung out together. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, it's the young teen and the older teen. It was just everybody, you know, you had parents and sons and daughters all socialising together and stuff as well. And it was just an amazing energy. And I think any time we were working on new music, we are always going, oh, I can't wait to play it at Mall Music Fest. So I always sort of go back to that as being um, something that was was absolutely brilliant. Uh, in Mall Music Fest that weekend, certainly something not been for a long time and um, so I missed that that was always and it was always just multiple multiple laughs like talk, talking about Ali Kellogg earlier on uh, that, that I think Mall Festivals we met him at first because a guy called Coco McPhail that we know well up there was pals with Ali and played uni with uh, rugby at uni with him and um, I think after a few shandies we, we decided oh, let's try to wrestle this big guy Ali Kellogg see how tough he is he was like 6 foot 7 or 6 foot 8 I'm sure he pretty sure he lodged me and my brother <laughs> several feet in the air in a bush, you know. It was a uh, sort of warning not not to try that again uh, with him as well. But uh, it was good good times. So, so many laughs at the ball, but the, just the energy of it all was was great and a, a great inspiration. It was it was inspiration for a lot of sort of sets and music as I said when we were when we were working on new material as well. So, um, what was it like working on um, your first couple of albums? There were, um, there was obviously help with Skippinish. How how key were they on um, making those albums happen? Yeah, really, really key. And I said, Angus was always three years ahead of me at, at school, so we always looked at them for you know inspiration and advice and stuff as well. And, and they've been doing so well. Um, but they, they were great in the sense that they, they also just gave us freedom to 
to do the music as we wanted. You know, it was not a case of them coming and saying, oh, this is how it's going to be. They're very much, you know, you, you guys go and do and We're already starting to explore of trying to mix different styles into the West Coast stuff. Um, so we did those first three albums, West Coast Life and On the Road with, with Skipness Records. And um, obviously it was great, as the great times, it wouldn't change any of the world. It was just amazing memories um, doing that. And it was, it was the right step at that point for us because we were still sort of discovering our, where we wanted to go with Scary War and how we wanted to sound. I think we knew in our minds where we wanted to go, but we, we had to you know, get there get there slowly. It wasn't a case of, well, we're just going to explode and start doing our own deal. We had to build up a following first and, and almost build trust, you know, audience trust, and then we could start introducing more of our own music um, as well. But on the road, I think that was Alex's first song composition. It was on that, and then there was quite a lot of our own first tune compositions as well on that album. So, as I Gus and, and Andrew were, we were a lot of great laughs with them, and, and there was great support, and, and they still are, you know, we still mm. speak to them now these days. So, uh, we moved to your third album, which you, you did say that you wanted the band to like kind of really focus in on what you um, wanted to be. How special was it to release the third album, which was? Made up entirely of your your own creations. Yeah, r- really key, and I always go back to. It. I think it's the the album that changed everything for us in terms of it becoming a career and and doing traveling around the world playing music and um, I, I, it was scary at the time as well in the sense of you know we were worried about the reaction a wee bit and um, you know so many people used to playing Kayla and it was hard to make the shift and people sort of going. Other Akeley band, um, and we were never just a Akeley band because we always did songs and, and a mix of stuff. But, but we're trying to make that jump from that to being just a band that releases their own music it was, it was quite a difficult one to navigate, and we were sort of worried about it. But once we get into the Scary World project, the self-titled album, the third one, um, we were so sure about it, and it's definitely the album I, that along with Evo that I enjoyed the most in terms of. The process and, and doing it and being so excited about the release so it was a a, a great time and as a very important one because it, it did sort of change everything in terms of the opportunities that we then had to, to travel abroad and sign to our first agencies and things abroad as well from off the back of that album so it was, it was absolutely key. I'm always curious to learn about bands how was the the writing process? Um, it, it, it's changed quite a bit over time on it. I mean, a lot of the times people will generally just write for themselves and have ideas uh, and try and get it to some sort of demo that they can then share with the band and everyone can have a listen a bit and then we'll get together and try and play. Um, on on Scary Board, there's quite a bit, probably more mixed writing process than what there's been since on that one. But it wasn't a case it's all coming together in one room and going, right, we're just going to write a song today. It was more pockets of things like um, I, maybe Marty would wrote a, an idea for a tune and then he would share it with everybody and we'd be going in there knowing that we had something to work on. It's quite hard in a big group you know, in, in anything, any walk of life, uh, democracy and trying to get a, a large group all going in one direction can be can be tricky. Um, so we tried to at least have something that we're going in there with that people have had time to think around first rather than just going into that room and, and all stay and meet they're going right what are we going to do today and um, so it, it's changed quite a lot right up to the point now with you and i that just been released 
Alec did so much of that in his flat in the first place as a track that said through that you know that we didn't even play it together as a band ever the first time we did was uh, the stream at uh, New Year's Day you know and it had already been released by that point so it just shows you you know how, how different it, the processes can be done and I would never say there's one way that works 100% every time it can be different for any particular piece of music you know so just uh, try, to, try to work out what's best for any particular given piece of music and and, uh, and, take, and take the feedback. And there's been tracks that haven't worked, you know, that we've tried stuff and, and we've come back to them sometimes as well on, on other albums, you know, that didn't make an album. So we'll, we'll go back and revisit that and have a look at it again and, and see if it could work. And I think that was the case with um, the Mile High set on the Evil album. We looked at that at the album before and just we weren't happy with it, we couldn't get it, and then came back, we looked at it and arranged it differently and all of a sudden it barely clicked and, and off we went with it you know many accolades feature um such as playing at tea in the park what what do you prefer playing at that like massive venue or like maybe a, a local wedding up in tyree uh oh, bits of, well, there's good things in both <laughs> obviously anything going back to <clears throat> back home anyways it's good I, i'm definitely I, I love playing big festivals and and you know ones with the crowds extremely noisy and, and energetic I think the scarier gigs are definitely ones where you're playing seated theatres uh, in halls and stuff like the first time we did some of them it's just an absolute shock to the system you know we were obviously used to coming through the pubs in the western isles and uh-huh. folk throwing drinks and everything <laughs> and, uh, and carnage to this just absolute silence um, so that that did take a, you know, a good bit of getting used to but um, it was important that we did adapt and able to do those shows because there's so many amazing venues around the world in terms of theatres that we've had the chance to play in, like the Music Instrument Museum in Phoenix and um, so like we would have hated not to do those venues if you think back in it, but it did take a, a lot of adjustment. Mm. I would still every day of the week go for a, a music festival crowd or, or a festival abroad though. So what was it like um, walking out to, to Team Park in front of those thousands of people um, with something that you've created in Scarybor? Uh, it, it, was, it was okay. We were in the, I can't remember what the tent was called, the tea in the park was that long ago, um, but actually loads of people came to see us. Um, that you know, that we knew, you, you got to remember how big tea in the park is and how many folk and we managed to get the word out there. So there was loads of folk we actually recognised. So it wasn't the case of uh, some other festivals we go to abroad, we're playing new songs, mm-hmm. new material people have never heard us before. And that's harder. Than you know, than playing in front of an audience where you know that people that's, that know some of your material and sing along. So the, the tea in the park one was was quite easy. I, I do always remember one thing about tea in the park though was like we were maybe forty minutes into our set and uh, literally just the tent empty and we're like, what have we done? <laughs> <laughs> and somebody said something. Have we done something here? And all, all it was was I think Pat on the TV was starting on oh. on the main stage. Oh, you're kidding. Just, disappear you know and we've seen that other festivals some huge festivals in america that have got like 20 stages at them mm-hmm. and uh, you're, you're playing your set and you're like, oh, this is going great and the next minute the crowd just get up and weave and the biggest act of the night starting on the stage 30 minutes down the down the site so uh, that, that can be a strange one to get used to but you've just got to obviously still do your job and, and mm. perform because there, there will always be people that will just stay regardless but it must be cruel do you not want them to just lock the door and keep them inside for until you're set uh, it would be nice, <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice. 
but it's, uh, as I said, it's it's one that you, it's the first time it happens, or maybe the first couple of times it happens, it's a shock. But uh, you sort of get used to it. I suppose if you know that's the way it's going to be. But there's, mm-hmm. we'll see that we, we've been fortunate, particularly um, of late. A lot of the festivals we've played, we've had, we've had very strong slots. We've not been closing the festival. We've been on some sort of headline slots, and, and, uh, and that's fortunate we built up to that. So good but no doubt i think if things go ahead we're, we're playing at a, a huge festival and uh, the czech republic and i think we've been told that's along with similar lines where there's so many stages that the audiences come and go mm-hmm. um, as well so it's something that will continue to happen there's no doubt about that amazing uh, you were also named ambassadors for scotland in 2008 for the Ryder cup how did that feel uh, representing your your home country in all across the world Oh, that, was, that was just an amazing trip. Absolutely, <laughs> that was our first time in America, and uh-huh. uh, you just cannot believe the excitement levels. Um, and it was in Louisville, Kentucky, the Ryder Cup that year. Yeah. And they did this thing called Four Street Live there, and it oh, it just we, we we honestly we had to play fifteen minutes a night at, at these sort of receptions, Scotland receptions, because it was it was just before homecoming Scotland. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that's what we were there essentially promoting the Scottish government. We had to play 15 to 20 minutes a night. That was us done. And then they're just like, we, we were rolling in at like 8 in the morning from 4th Street Live, getting a bit of sleep, doing the sound check at the next venue, going again. Uh, it, it was just an incredible, uh, incredible trip. And um, I think the only thing we're gutted about is we with the chance to go. We got offered um, tickets to go to the last day of the Ryder Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had to travel to Chicago to do another reception. And it, it all changed basically at first. It looks like well, we're going to get to go and see, you know, the final bit of the Ryder Cup that Sunday, and then the, the travel we get we end up having to get driven to Chicago uh, from from Louisville, which is a big drive. I can't remember exactly something like fourteen or sixteen hours, uh, all, all the way up. So we're gutted to miss that, but uh, it, it was a, an amazing experience. Uh, as the first trip in America, and that, actually through that trip, when we got to Chicago, we met a guy Gus Noble from Chicago Scots. And that led to the, our next bookings in America being there. So although we missed out the Ryder Cup Sunday, um, it got us in front of somebody else that's been an important part in supporting what we've done in North America since. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it was worth it. So that was only um, three years into into the band because you started in 2005, is that right? Yeah, so we, we were playing a good couple of years before that, maybe two or mm-hmm. three years before that without any sort of name. But 2005 was the... Is when we yeah. sort of fixed on scary boring. So how did um how did you get picked to, to the be the ambassadors? Was there like a audition or was it just picked from no, the, but, the government? Yeah, just uh, I, I think again Stuart Castells, um who, who at the point was the, the front man of the Red Hot Chili Pipers and mm-hmm. a lot to do with this as well. I think that they potentially were asked to go out and they couldn't do it and and we then got the chance to speak to the, the Scottish government and go out and doing it. But that also, the other thing that led to it is was one of the tracks we had to perform was Caledonia, and we just recorded it, I think, um, at that time. So there was some link in with that that I think they, they were adamant they wanted Caledonia to be performed as part of these receptions. And we obviously did vocals in the Chili's didn't at that point. So um, it, it was a good chance to, to get, get our name out there again, as I said, mm. make, make a first trip to north america and we've been out every year since you know so um it was a, it was a huge opportunity to be part of 
2011 was a fantastic year for the band. Managed to scoop multiple awards, including um, the MG Trad Awards, is that right? Yeah, I think that was our first live act of the year. and All that sort of rolled off the back of the Scary Boar album in 2010. And as I said, it was just like, it was a real game changer. And just like anything else in life, when you get a bit of momentum uh, rolling behind stuff, we just went, went in a roll and, and some great gigs and travels. I think that was our first trips abroad for like so Italy and Spain and things like that, and Portugal. So it was, it was great. Um, and then really nice to get awards as well I think there was a couple other ones music awards and things as well so really nice did you give your uh, acceptance speech in Gaelic for the job? no I can't feel that good at all <laughs> I wouldn't dare do that there um, I can't remember even who, who spoke uh, that far back we've, we've been fortunate to have a, have a few awards probably just lucky we could speak we were pretty wild in those days with the baby so uh, I, can't, I can't remember who did the speech to be honest probably me Probably. Were you surprised how much the public took to your music? I think you all I think you always are. Um, as I said, I think one thing we've never taken for granted is the support we've had, and I would never underestimate the how valuable the very early years were of us travelling around the west coast, and even when we came to Glasgow, we're playing in the Park Bar, we're playing in the island, and uh, you know. If you're based in Glasgow yourself, you know how strong these communities are there. Uh, and in terms of people getting to know your music, getting to know you personally as well. So I think it, it's very clear to see when there's bands that have organically grown like ourselves versus bands that have just popped out of nowhere, particularly in the commercial music scene, and then disappear because there's no organic growth and there's not people that have got personal connection. Because there's loads of folk that we know that we see again now in their early memories. Are of our gigs on the west coast at all music festival etc as well so it's part of their life and their history um, so they'll always follow us um, for that reason and that goes for so many bands particularly on, on, on the west coast scene as well so uh, I think it was hugely influential on, on the band and still is to this day so um, you've, there's a thing here where you were working with youngsters and prisoners um, I think it was 2011 or 12. Yeah. Where did the idea come around to work with that? Obviously, you had fantastic tutors up north. Did you feel that it was kind of your duty now to pass on um, valuable experience to the to the up-and-comers? Um, well, it wasn't, this wasn't back home in Tyree, to be fair. This was, uh, I work was with Live Music Now, which is a, a charity, a, a global music charity. Um, and the, the objective of it is to get live music to people um, young and old that you know perhaps don't have the, the opportunity or the same opportunities as, as others to, to hear live music it's, it's an amazing charity and, and we, we did a lot with them for a good period of time five or six years so um it, it was interesting we, we did the audition for, for live music now and that was scary that was probably one of the scariest gigs i had to do um because basically we did you had to decide whether you were more focused on doing performances for young people or for older people because they do a lot of stuff particularly in elderly care homes and things like that as well we said right we're going to do it for the young folk and we were advised by previous lives that folks said well you need to speak to the panel like they're kids so there's like folk in here that we knew like Aaron Jones was there and Mary Ann Kennedy and stuff and you know, we went in with blow up guitars and stuff and <laughs> carry on uh, and doing this so that, that was terrifying but thankfully we got in 
Um, and after we were in, we did a few things at schools, and a lot we did, we did quite a lot of special needs schools and stuff as well, which you know is an amazing experience. And uh, then they said we're going to start doing some concerts in prison. Would you be interested in this? We said, we're up for that. So we did. We got this guy in to do training for us before we were going in to do these prison workshops and performances, and the training was terrifying. Absolutely, <laughs> the guy was terrifying. To the point that uh, Carol, who's, who's still in charge of live music now, Scotland today, she's like, listen, you don't have to do this. She was terrified for us, because <laughs> he's going through worst case scenario, you know, absolutely worst case scenario of, of things that can happen. But it didn't put us off, so he says, right, uh-huh. the first one we're going to do for you is uh, you, can, you can go to Northern Ireland in McGabry Prison. So straight away, we've just got in our minds, night out, Belfast. <laughs> so they've sent us over uh, to McGabry, and, and we've rocked up at the prison and we pulled up at the gate and the, the guys at the gate security guy says you boys aren't going anywhere today and like, how come there's all these riots in there like, all right so straight away you're celebrating going brilliant we're still getting we're going to get paid for this but we're going out in belfast tonight. <laughs> he says he's radioed the, the guy inside he says you just to wait they're trying to control the riot and things so just wait so we must have sat outside for i don't know another two hours or something like that just, Turning their thumbs and security guards kept coming giving us updates and they, they come over and says, Right boys, you're going in. Yeah. Alright. When we go and the, the original plan was that we were going to do the we were going to perform and do this workshop for uh, for inmates and we we're going to be doing it in the canteen or the or some area, you know, like this some some sort mm-hmm. of communal area. So we'll get in here and meet this guy. I'm trying to remember his name, I can picture him, I can't remember his name, but he was like, you know, he did everything, art and culture with the inmates. He, he met us and he says, eh, listen, change the plan. We're not going to do, eh, we can't use the kitchen anymore, so we're just going to put you in the cell block. <laughs> we looked at each other and is, he, is this a wind-up or not? <laughs> and we, we had quite a lot of gear. And eh, so we walked out in the security guards and they opened the, the cell and it's like a sort of holding pen uh-huh. put in. So we're in this holding pen, the gate shuts behind us, the other gate opens, he says, right, lift your gear out and the, the guys that helped us and put the gear right in the middle of the cell floor. And in your mind, you're going, oh, it's a jail, you're going to see the prisoners, you know, mm-hmm. behind the bars. Yeah. You couldn't see anything, it was just like solid doors, absolutely solid doors, Oof. you couldn't see a thing in a cell block. And uh, we, we're loading all the gear out into the, in, into the hallway, into the, the cell, the middle of the floor in the cell. And then the security guy, guys get out, leave us in the cell <laughs> and get out and go behind the, the, the pen gate. And like, they said, right, we're just going to unlock these doors now. Well, this is happening over my shoulder at the left one of these doors is getting wellied so you can't see who's behind it but uh-huh. you know he's he's putting the door as much force as he can so we're looking at each other going see when he unlocks these doors this guy's just going to come out and grab his own <laughs> <laughs> absolutely petrified and the guy's just like well unlock the doors and the doors and all the doors open themselves and this boy that had been welling the door for 10 minutes just walks out as calm as he wants sits down in front of us and along with maybe about 20 or 30 guys all together, as calm as you want, sat down. and uh, It was obviously terrifying at first, but then we just started playing music and chatting away to them. And some of them said, oh, do you want to come in and see the see cells and things? And it's just fascinating. And this is young boys that have been obviously involved in the troubles and you know maybe been misled and mm-hmm. involved in bombings and things like that and they're in there for the rest of their life. Uh, so it was you know, absolutely eye-opening, but... Um, a real life lesson and experience. So that's the track, the jailhouse jigs that's on the Scary War album. Oh, that's what yeah. That's named after. 
that's what's that that's named after amazing is the, the trip mcgabbery prison we still went out belfast that night i think but uh, we definitely need a pint coming out i tell you <laughs> were there any um did you did you give the instruments to the to the prisoners was there any players in there or was it just you were playing to them I don't, I don't remember that being the case. And to be fair, a lot of the stuff for live music now wasn't so much like tuition. It was mm-hmm. more about just allowing people the experience of live music and um, you know allowing them to ask and speak to you and stuff about life experience. We did another one at Conton Bale Prison, the, the female prison in Scotland, um, where that was an actual songwriting workshop. Mm-hmm. But there was a few of them that could play as well and they had an actual music room and stuff um, and we did quite a few songwriting type workshops uh, both in prisons and down in schools and stuff as well um, but not much of it was actually you know fully tuition uh, based or anything like that it was never like that it was more about live music house purpose is more about the experience of, of live music um, as it's an amazing charity if, if anyone you know, listening wants to check it out you can go and it, it, it was live music now offices all around the world so we, we did a prison outside uh, Munich before as well which was, a, it was a, absolutely an amazing gig um, as well you know, they were just going, going absolutely crazy for it you know? so, um, and, and it's, it's obviously a, a, a slightly controversial topic mm-hmm. you know that we are getting hired to go in and, uh, and play music for people that broke the law but it's yeah. very much seen as part of the rehabilitation uh, side of things and as I said it's not just that that was quite a new thing for live music now, and I think they used us as the guinea pigs to be honest to see if it would go well or not. Uh, but so much of it is like music for for care homes and mm-hmm. and, and special needs schools that we did the, the Royal Blind School in Scotland. Um, loads of spe- there was a special needs school we visited every couple of months for a good few years, to the point that all the staff there came to our gigs and stuff, and everyone else as well. We got to know them really well. So, um, lots of great experiences and a great charity that's still going. Um, just a quick thing, um, last thing before we move on from the, the prisons. How much confidence does it give you? Because if I was going into a prison with like people who, as you said, broke the law, I'd be terrified. But as you said, like they just came through cams, you like sat down and were just chatting. Um, how much confidence did it give you that you just were able to control the whole room of convicts? Yeah, it, it is a competent thing. I know that was part of the training um, on it, but I, th- I think just the, the main thing is just the human aspect of it. Is he's, you know, everyone's there, just a, a human and wants to maybe hear music. We've had a, a, as I said, a lot of these guys, particularly in the McGabry one, just eye-opening. And we were always told, you know, as part of the training, we're saying, you don't go in there and ask what you've done. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you get in there? Some of them might want to tell you, and a lot of them did want to tell you. Um, I mean, the, the, the workshop we did at Conton Bale with the it was young offenders that we did it was all girls that were eighteen and under and it, you know we're, we're in there and some of them were really serious crimes as well but we you know, we never we never ever asked it was never a conversation unless they wanted to speak to you about it but we, we got an amazing letter from one of the girls after it and she says it, it literally just changed her her whole uh, mental position within there she was really struggling. Mm-hmm with the whole thing and then it was a release you know we did the, the Conton Bale songwriting workshop it was about eight weeks we did songwriting with them and then performed a chunk of the so they were performing in front of their peers in there which was which was probably a lot scarier for them and get a whole load of confidence so I think we took confidence the fact that we could make a difference 
or try to make a difference to people. So mm-hmm. People's lives of rehabilitation. Um, and, and as it like some of the performances we did in special needs schools and stuff like that, and the reactions there and uh, you know, sort of the joy you can bring through music, um, it was amazing. So as uh, loads, loads and loads of good memories from from doing live music now stuff, uh, and it's great that it's still going so strong today. So um, that's fantastic to hear with live music now. Um, you've had different members going in and out of the band. Was it hard to keep the same drive and sort of like influence uh, in your music? Um, no, it, it. I think probably the hardest thing is is just always to keep improving. You know, we've sort of got two golden rules with Scary Boar is that we'll keep going as long as uh, A, we're enjoying it, that's the most important one, and B, as long as we feel it's progressing, it's going forward, both musically and, you know, as, as an operation. Um, think anything becomes hard is it if you feel it's not going forward or you're not enjoying it and that's ultimately what what triggers for changes in in band members we're lucky that it's only we've only changed the bass player in the band and so Barry the original bass player I think as soon as it started to come to doing a lot of international travel it was very clear straight away that he was struggling with that side of things there was never we've been fortunate there's never been any major fallouts me me and Marty have had a few boxing matches in the early days but (laughs) That's just sibling rivalry. It's not nothing really to do with the band. So we've been fortunate that way that you know that any any change in band members has never come from a, a split that caused legal issues or anything like that at all. So Barry, so we knew him, and he could tell he just got married, and he 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 found the travel really tricky. Uh, and then he said Coco came in, uh, Colin, uh, Colin came in from uh, he was remember familiar with him through Rollstone, and. Uh, he, he, he just wanted to do loads of projects. He didn't want the thing of just doing Scary War all the time. So again, he was just like, I'm going to let us go. And then Jody came in and covered for him and, uh, and has been in, been in since. And we've obviously added band members who came along. Craig came in and fiddle first, and then Barry on bass, and then Alan, uh, who produced the, the Scary War album. I think once we've been, been in working in the studio, Alan, and he'd been playing keys and so many of the tracks and doing stuff and so influential. He hadn't been out live gigging for 10 years, but we managed, I think he said, I'll come out and do the album launch. And he had the album launch, he said, oh, can you do this next gig? Can you do the next gig? And then, but eventually broke him down. <laughs> he's out the road all the time, and he's been out with it since. So um, there was that. And then Scott is a, is the most recent member that joined because my, my brother Martin's got focal hand dystonia condition in his hands that we've tried to manage for a long time. Mm-hmm. But the point, it was just... It was becoming really difficult for Martin and, and, and sort of shattering his confidence. So Scott's come in and then Scott's taken it up another level just because of his musicianship and his energy and stuff as well. So um, it's a, it's not been it's not been hard in terms of the personnel changes. I think the hard part is just constantly finding ways to progress mm-hmm. and you know write new music and keep going forward. But the typical rules are that you know, we need to keep enjoying it and we need to keep going forward. And I think probably the most difficult parts is just when you don't feel it's it's moving at the pace we want it to move at, but sometimes you just need to be patient and it can be circumstance as well as as much as you want it to happen that things can progress. And the, the new song, You and I, is probably a great example of that. The playlist and thing came out of nowhere mm-hmm. after the live stream in January. So um, it's, it's one of these ones that I think there's, there's always been a huge organic 
growth is getting more that still exists, I see. So the tenth anniversary concert uh, was in Oban. What was it like to have your creation uh, last ten years t- uh, to that day? Ah, that was it. was an amazing. I love my landmark. I would say just in terms of obviously, as in terms of time, but in terms of the progression, we always had in our minds that we wanted to do. You know, everyone's got to have a long term dream. We also we want to do like a stadium size gig of our own, not a festival or somebody else's audience. It's just still a gig. Um, and I remember sort of floating the idea to the guys. I think some of them thought I was crazy when I said we can pull this off. Um, and because uh, I remember around the time, I we, we announced this in January of that tenth year, which has been twenty fifteen. I think in December or November twenty fourteen, there was a gig somewhere, and we'd only sold fifty tickets or something for it. And this is like a month or a month and a half before we're about to launch this gig, and the aim was to sell. Uh, That's amazing. Um, how it's just like the public have just taken to your music um so well that you managed to sell out in twenty minutes. Cause you don't hear a lot of, well, typically a lot of Scottish bands. To be honest, I'm um, not heard much about um Scottish bands selling their location, uh, allocation really fast. Which so fair play to the band. Yeah, it was great. Uh, I'm just going to want to ask about my favourite track, Take My Hand. Uh, we have briefly talked about the, the GBX remix, but I want to know about the original version. Where did the inspiration come around uh, for that song? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. I, I need to ask Alec. But, uh, you know something, I don't know a lot about the background a lot of the time. Um, I, I think I always remember hearing the demo for, for Take My Hand, so going back and chatting about the songwriting process and for Evil, we just had like this online file and um, everyone was just uploading ideas, original ideas, maybe some ideas of traditional stuff that we could rearrange, etc. And the demo for Take My Hand was on there, and uh, it was a one straight away for me, and I think quite a lot of guys in the band were like, Alex really hit something here, this is this could be amazing, you know, and that was just his own sort of raw demo of it was on there, but as soon as we got in and we were playing it together, it was just straight away clear we knew we were on to a really strong, strong track, and 
and we select after we've worked on a whole load of tracks, we've, we've sort of all decided the majority of like that's the track we want to release from the Evil album first. Mm-hmm. As uh, in the, the videos worked on a lot, the guy Dolly McKinnon, um, on the video for it and stuff as well. So it, it was a great a, a great time. R- really enjoyed doing the Evil album, but I, I don't know exactly what the the full inspiration behind it. Alec always says a big thing for him is he thinks about the summer and the festival circuit and the energy and he wanted this track to be something that captured, you know, that sort of vibe mm-hmm. of TMF and the summers and all that. He, he said that a lot in open other interviews that we've done. They, that's always a sort of inspiration in, in his mind, but I don't think there's a particular story with that one anyway, um, other than, you know, trying to capture a, a feeling. So what version do you prefer? Do you prefer the original or uh, GBX? Original for me. <laughs> Definitely original mm-hmm. for me. I do, I do like the GBX, but as I'm not. I'm less of a hard house man and, and <laughs> more of a house uh, dance music man than than uh, than that. But it's a. Uh, it, it was great, and as I said, the react, reaction that George always said that reaction to when he's playing it on the GBX shows is is brilliant as well. Yeah. So it's, it's a great experience and. I think it's testament to a, good, a great song like that that it can be, you can have these different versions and they'll be taken, the reactions are so good in both ways, so, um, but no, it's, it's, it's still a song that when we play it, it, it you know, just the, the atmosphere goes up another level, um, big, so looking forward to playing that again when we get back to it. Uh, so how does it feel to... Um hold the accolade of, quote, we could uh, well have found a run rig for the 21st century. I, myself, I spoke to Carl McDonald, one of the original founders of run rig, and I was asking him about the up-and-coming bands, and he, he highlighted yourselves and Tidelines as like the, the key focus now for, for Scottish music into the 21st century. How, how does it feel to get such praise from um, massive icons? Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Very kind of Carl. So that, I think it's always one... Um, People sometimes are very quick to just sort of put labels, particularly on new acts, you know. And I understand why, you know, if they, if they try to explain a band or a, or a music, but I think we've always been, you know, hugely respectful of Runrig. I don't think anyone now can do. Runrig happened at a time, you know, in a such important time for Gaelic uh, and culture and everyone else as well. And you know, it's just a legacy that will never, never be recreated. And I think Gaelic's such a fundamental part of what they uh, you know did and, and what they represent and that Gaelic you know, has, has a far less part of Scary Wars history obviously still is a big part of us but not anywhere to the level that Runrig is and, um, but to get even mentioned in the same breath of, of, as Runrig is obviously a huge huge compliment that we're always, always very proud to uh, anyone makes reference to that because just you know, the absolute incredible band. As I said, it's, it's stuff with a huge, huge legacy. So if we can have any sort of legacy like that at the end, I think we'd all be delighted. And we've we've been fortunate to, um, you know, speak to some of the guys. Some of the guys have shared the stage with us. Alex sang the run rig at a tuner festival in Denmark um, a couple of years ago and stuff as well. So uh, nothing but respect. And as I said, I think we wrote. We sent him a bottle of whiskey for the last dance. We were in America at the time. We're all pretty gutted to miss that. We sent him a bottle of, of Talisker and, uh, and sent a message to them afterwards. And we did say, you know, 
I think the biggest inspiration running rig with us was the bravery to take on huge shows. Mm-hmm. It probably gave us the confidence to try and do things like Decade and Open Live, knowing that Run Rig pulled off events like The Last Dance, um, Stirling Castle, uh, Party in the Moor, all these things. You know, they, they were never scared to take huge risk to deliver iconic shows or big shows, and I think that was probably the biggest inspiration Run Rig had on us is you know, ne- never being afraid. I, I think it's got. Scottish people, we've got always got this thing to sort of downplay um, our worth or our achievements and stuff. It's just a Scottish trait, uh, but you know they, they just always showed huge, huge ambition and and, and bravery and doing these things. And uh, I think that was a massive. That's been a, made a massive impact on us. Another great thing that Scaryvore did during the pandemic, you released a track in aid of the NHS charities, and uh, that was what Everyday Heroes. Um, where was the where did the idea come around to help out and how difficult was it to make it restrictions? I myself actually, um, you released the um, was it part of the tune on your on your socials so like people at home could could play. Yeah, yeah I'm a I'm a piper, so I was able to to play along with the with the track, which made me feel like not part of the band, but like you know a bit a bit closer to you, given the the circumstances. How how was that whole experience of making that track? It was amazing. Uh, obviously, it was right at the start of, of the pandemic when you know everybody had so much uncertainty and and, uh, and fear about what was happening. It all happened so quickly. Uh, you know, we'd been in tour in America, and um, eventually, it was, you know, we were sort of watching it from afar and things getting worse and worse. And we just had to make the call. Like we were heading home. I think we were in Oklahoma, and we said, "Right, we're going home." And we got home on the Monday, and the Monday night was when. Uh, Boris made the speech, you know, that this is, you know, everyone's going to, the country's going to lock down. And from there, you know, it was just crazy the next couple of days. But I think Martin had spoken to uh, Brian Gibb at the Cycle Jersey, who manufactured a lot of merchandise for the band and for the festivals and stuff. And Brian said, um, oh, you could write a tune for the front line. And that just sowed a seed that Martin said, and he went away. And he, uh, We'd sort of been speaking most days online to get the guys in the band. We didn't, we didn't know what was going on, you know. Gigs were getting cancelled. No one really knew what was going on. But we'd been speaking most days about what, what's going to happen. And Martin says, look, I've got an idea for this tune. Um, and we sent it to Scott. And Scott did a sort of rough guide for it. And it got shared around us all. And, you know, some of the guys have got sort of home studio set up. Some of us don't. I don't have anything. So it's, it was just a mix. And then we thought, let's get some friends and guests to play on it so we started sending mm-hmm. messages out to musician friends and they recorded parts and then uh, there was obviously the idea of because there was the clap for care thing and then started we said what about we do it on the Thursday and we get people to play after that as well and mm-hmm. it just it just grew arms and legs so so fast you know um, when, when I think back it's just a bluff it all happened so quickly but incredible and it ended up being number one in Scotland it's the first time we've ever had that number one track so mm-hmm. um, you know, it was on TV and Martin was in interviews and tell it, it just it, it's amazing how quickly it all happened you know talking about the songwriting process and the process of making music albums sometimes can go on for ages tracks and go on for months get worked on mm-hmm. that, that literally all got pulled together in the space of a week you know just parts got pulled all together and then it was like here we go and you know you couldn't do a traditional music video for it like we'll just need to do stuff on phones and things yeah 
it all just got patched together and away we went. But it was it was an incredible experience and obviously just amazing to get a number one, but amazing just to just to port the front line workers and give a bit of comfort. And as I said, you know, you sitting yourself joining in was great for you and the amount of messages we got from around the world was just just incredible. Do you have a, a final tally for how much you, you raised for NHS charities? We don't know for the NHS charity because basically we linked it direct to the main uh, NHS charity port oh, so. just then going to everything. But what we do know, so that all the, the donations that came in and all the the money that got raised to that pot, we don't know exactly that. But what we do know is from the downloads and the streams mm-hmm. that came to our record label, we, we handed over a cheque for about £3,000 to the Glasgow Children's Hospital. Wow. Because we said, right, we'll do what comes of that. We'll give the, the frontline workers in our home city on there as well. So Mark and Craig handed over a cheque over them. I think it was like £2,800 or something like that. Um, and that was back in June time. Mm-hmm. And then, so the track will just keep going yeah. and keep getting support there as well, which is, which is great. The sad thing is, and that sort of comes to the, the ongoing debate around streaming music just now, is like, you know, we had, that, that was a Scottish number one. Uh, on the week of the track alone, it had 90,000 plays on on streams, and that, that generated about £200, you know, which is it's a hard one to stomach, you know. Um, when you think most people would have been happy to pay a pound for it, mm-hmm. for giving its cause or something like that, and you could have raised a far bigger sum of money at the end, but obviously the streaming things are an ongoing debate just now globally um, about how fair or unfair it is to artists in terms of remuneration. So what does the future currently hold for Scarivore moving into 2021 and, and so on? <laughs> we don't know, man. That's a, that's a scary thing. Um, I, right now it's just a case of basically a lot of the shows were on reschedules again. Um, things have been cancelled and we'll try to see when when we can come back on the road. Aside from that, there's a few other projects at, at the back of our mind. We're just focused on writing more music. But the You and I thing was a, a, a huge boost. You know, um, we, we did the live stream at New Year and we didn't really know what the next thing we we're going to do after that. And then to get a phone call from, from Radio 2 to say that we've been selected in the new music playlist and then six weeks on that has just been a, a huge boost. So I think everybody's got a wee spring in their step and name is just to, to write new music and and, uh, and take it from there whether we release a, another song or another tune or, or whether we try and get enough together to do an album and um, we don't know I think the, the main aim at the moment is just to write new music so there's a couple of projects in the background and we're, we're obviously contemplating doing another live stream and um, we're going to announce some, some stuff in that as well but I think we're all just looking forward to being back out on, on tour whenever that will be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, I think the amazing thing is just the, the support of people um, on, on it all, you know, right through this whole thing. We've said that the, the engagement and support we've had has been absolutely incredible. So a huge thanks to everybody that's, you know, either played their music, shared their music, bought me up some dice, watched the streams. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been incredible. So we've got a lot of, lot of thanks to do when we go back and hopefully we're going to pay people with the live performances and new music. Finally, uh, just touching on Scotland for the Euros, what um, what do you think is going to happen, and what um, what score is going to be with England? Oh, <laughs> I just hope we can go down for the carry on. Well, uh-huh. there, so that part Barbus will be 
be brilliant. But um, I, I don't know. I just, I just think it will be difficult. We're always difficult for them, and I think we'll we'll, uh, we'll cause them a lot more problems than they sometimes expect. So mm-hmm. um, I'd like to see we're going to sneak it two one. John Fleck with the winner. I know I'll I'll uh, grab that don't worry and I'll, I'll save it for another time but thank you so much Daniel for being on the show it was a pleasure to talk to you and it's great to see that the the band is still going strong despite the uncertainty of the of the lockdown just now great thanks Fraser great to speak to you man